Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. I hope you are having a wonderful day. You know who I know is having a wonderful day? The folks in Habersham County. I went up there last night uh, to, to a Chamber of Commerce event. Uh, it was fantastic. Y'all, I had the best time. It was just wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, and um, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say, well, <laughs> let's just say I got some clear liquid in jars. Um, my wife is very excited. <laughs> it was, y'all, it was great. Um, I have not spent a lot of time in Northeast Georgia and have found myself up there two weeks in a row. Uh, on Lake Burton last week uh, in, in recovering from my midlife crisis. And then yesterday went up there. I'm, I managed to go over to Helen. I've never been to Helen, Georgia before. And I got up to Clarksville and I had time. Uh, I was an hour early. I, you never know between Macon and, and North Georgia. I mean, it can be two hours. It can be 20 hours. So went up there and uh, wound up driving over to Helen and I'm on the phone with my wife. She's like, oh, it's a tourist trap. Hold on to your wallet. <laughs> it's a tourist trap. Um, I mean, it was, it was cute, but mm, the German stick, um, yeah. I bet I could get good schnitzel and beer, though. I did not stop. I had to turn around and uh, went to downtown Clarksville. And, y'all, it was just, it was a great time. Uh, it was nice actually being with people. I shook hands. I did. Used lots of hand sanitizer. In fact, I managed to cover my hands in hand sanitizer and then wiped my eyes and didn't think about it and uh, looked like I was crying half the night. I was so overwhelmed. Uh, but it was great. Uh, Woods Mercantile, uh, they're great furniture store, by the way. Good people, and the food was good. The people were great. Uh, I Even Unicoi Outfitters up there, uh, they sent me a little gift box. So, random story here, and I promise I, I will leave this alone. I was just, it was so nice to be out with people last night. Uh, but, so Dick Cheney, uh, the former vice president, for years pushed me to do fly fishing and then uh, recruited Tucker Carlson to the cause. And uh, several uh, Tucker Carlson has on repeated occasions uh, told me that I just, you got to do fly fishing. And, and Tucker has said that it just, even if I were to stand in the backyard and, and just cast that I need to do it, that it's therapeutic, that it would take my mind off stuff. Uh, that's what he does. And the vice president uh, did that. Yeah. Dick Cheney stands outside and just practices his fly fishing. Well, I've never been, and uh, bugs and, and snakes, and but I, I guess I'm going to have to go. So the Unicoi Outfitter people um, gave me some, um, oh, it, it gave me some a, a gift bag of stuff. And I guess I'm going to have to, my, my buddy David Cannon, he's actually a pretty world-famous photographer, lives here. And if you go to Bass Pro or um, Cabela, you'll see his picture. All uh, all their pictures and stuff of the people fishing are, are, are David's. A brilliant photographer, uh, listens to the show. And he's been dying to get me out in North Georgia fly. I guess I'm going to have to do it at some point. But gosh, it was so nice. Uh, my, my people were sending gifts home to my wife. There was actually one guy who made a, a, a wax uh, votive with flowers in it. And I, I, I really didn't want to cry. But my when Christy and I got married, we went to Banff, Canada. And there was a, I bought her a bowl. It was made of beeswax and had flowers embedded in it. And that was, gosh, this October we'll have been married 20 years. And it accidentally got smashed a couple of weeks ago. And I have scoured the internet to find a replacement. And at last night at this thing in Habersham, a guy shows up and, and has almost identically 
uh, what we had lost, uh, providential. I, I was just overwhelmed by it. I, I really was. Uh, and I told the story, and I don't know if they believe me or not, but, man, I, I it was upsetting. She it, it really upset her that the thing got smashed. And um, and here comes a guy with with a replacement that's almost identical. It was it was amazing. In any event, it was great. And then I had to go um, do my financial planning with Chris Burns last night on the way home. I didn't get home until one o'clock this morning, and here I am. I, I I slept in late. Now we can get on to everything else. Thank you to the fine folks in Habersham County. It really is God's country up there. Beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, I want to talk to you about the Supreme Court. As you're aware, it actually happened during the show yesterday. I covered the breaking news. Uh, The United States Supreme Court rejected the Trump administration's uh, repeal of DACA. And I want to talk to you about this because there's a meltdown among some conservatives who didn't get their way at the Supreme Court. And I kind of think that's the problem here uh, of what happened. And and I, I need to explain a couple of things to you. The conservative legal movement, I don't think has collapsed and I don't think it's over. I think they hired a bunch of politicians to go onto the court through the Federalist Society. And those politicians on the Supreme Court are playing politics in ways that you and I don't play politics and the way other politicians don't play politics in large part because they are unelected, will serve for life and have longer games to play. Your average politician may be in Washington for 20 years. Your Supreme Court justice could be there for 30 years. Uh, And never has to campaign, never has to fundraise, never has to run for election and and can think about things in other ways. And that is what happened. Let let me start with the DACA decision and I'll pivot to Gorsuch on the the gay rights decision. So this is, again, I need to say this. This is analysis. This is not endorsement. John Roberts got it wrong in the DACA case. Clarence Thomas had the better argument that the underlying decision of the Obama administration to do DACA was unconstitutional. So regardless of the procedures in place to remove it, uh, it doesn't matter. It was unconstitutional to begin with. So the administration could do it. That's Clarence Thomas's argument. He's right. John Roberts's argument is different. John Roberts's argument is that they could not do it because they did not follow the Administrative Procedures Act. Uh, and I've got to jump back a couple of years. Two years ago, there was a census case in the United States Supreme Court. John Roberts also authored that decision. And in authoring that decision, what John Roberts said was there is a procedure by which the administration could ask about the census, uh, the citizenship question on the census. And the Trump administration wanted to put a census question on the census. I'm sorry, a census, a citizenship question on the census. And you had multiple people within the Department of Commerce that oversees the census provide multiple different explanations for wanting to ask the question, which was done at the spur of the moment and ignored any sort of standard procedure to put the question on the census form. And Roberts's decision at the time was, What you want to do is perfectly constitutional, but there are methods and practices and procedures in order to be able to do it. You must comply with the procedure in order to do what you want to do. What you want to do is completely constitutional, but the federal government requires a procedure be followed. The president at this point in the 21st century can't just snap his finger and demand it be done. A procedure has to be followed. Public input has to be given. And you people have provided multiple different explanations for why you wanted to add this citizenship question, which in and of itself is perfectly reasonable. But again, a procedure has got to be followed. And so you can't do it now. You'll have to put it off. 
That was John Roberts' census case. Fast forward two years to the DACA case. The president demands they get rid of rid of it, and they do it. Here's the thing. The Department of Homeland Security never did a paper trail. It's almost like the Department of Homeland Security wanted to sabotage the president here. They never did the paper trail. Multiple people gave competing answers for why they wanted to do it. So it gets to the Supreme Court. John Roberts has, in the census case, literally spent pages writing for the president the handbook. Do this. Now do this. Now do this. Now do this. And you can get what you want. That was his census case. It it literally, you read the census case that John Roberts authored two years ago, and it provides a roadmap. It provides repealing and adding things in the executive branch of government for dummies. That's that's what it was. I mean, the, the census case really is how to regulate for dummies. You read it and you get, anybody can understand, this is what you have to do to uh, repeal or add regulations. So here comes the DACA case and the DACA kids did absolutely nothing right in the Department of Homeland Security. They took John Roberts's uh, regulation for dummies and completely ignored it. They didn't do anything he told them to do. And that's his entire argument is basically two years ago, guys, I told you exactly what you needed to do to do this, and you chose to ignore it. Now, what the bottom line here is I really do believe John Roberts thinks Donald Trump is an idiot and wants no part of uh, helping affirm decisions that, uh, I mean, the, the they short-circuited the decisions. They, they didn't care to follow the procedures that needed to be followed to give them legitimacy, and, and Roberts wasn't going to give the president what he wanted. Now, Under all of this, I think there's an underlying presumption here that I think John Roberts is an institutionalist more than anything else. He's more of an institutionalist than he is a conservative, and he is the chief justice, and his job is to protect the institution of the court. And when you see conservatives reacting badly that they didn't get what they wanted out of this court, I think John Roberts smiles and nods knowingly that they're not there to give conservatives what they want per se. They're there to be conservative, but they're not just going to be there to be the grab bag for conservatives because then that undermines the credibility of the court. So if you want to get what you want, conservatives, you got to follow the procedures John Roberts tells you to follow. And guess what? They didn't follow the procedure, so they're not getting DACA. That is what happened. You can be outraged by it. You can be mad about it. But you need to understand that your anger and your rage about not getting what you wanted because you stacked the Supreme Court with conservatives is exactly why John Roberts didn't do it. He wanted to protect the integrity of the court. You can say it's wrong, but that's why he did it. Now, that gets us to the gay rights decision from Monday. Your Neil Gorsuch and your John Roberts, and you don't like Donald Trump, and you realize the headwinds are against him. I, I, I realize this will be upsetting for some of you to hear, but if the election for president were held today, Joe Biden would win. And you don't have to believe me. You can believe Donald Trump's advisors who have told the president this. If the election were held today, Joe Biden would win. At this point, the polling expanse is so wide. Don't give me the polling is wrong. You've got a 12-point gap now. That overcomes electoral college disparities, given the way polling is done. Joe Biden would win. And that means that Joe Biden would replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, David or Stephen Breyer and could potentially replace a conservative on the court if something like a Scalia situation happened. And John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch see the headlamp 
of a fast approaching train of cultural change coming. You have the transgender decisions coming. You have religious liberty decisions coming, and they need to do something to make sure that that fast approaching train of cultural revolution swerves and misses the churches. And the way to do that is to fold on sexual orientation and transgender status and then make sure that conservatives are the ones who get to write the decision. So what happened on Monday? John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch sided with the left on the Supreme Court, surprised everybody. But because John Roberts was in the majority under the rules of the Supreme Court, John Roberts gets to dictate who gets to write the decision. If John Roberts did not get to do, was not in the majority, who would dictate who wrote the decision? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Who do you think she would have write a historic decision like that? Herself. It would be her legacy. So John Roberts deprived Ruth Bader Ginsburg of her legacy and allowed Neil Gorsuch to write the decision that we all hate. And in so doing, he did a couple of things. One, he amplified the ministerial exception uh, protecting churches. Two, he said that RIFRA probably gives even more uh, cover to religious institutions. And three, he said that transgenderism is a status of behavior, not biology, and there are only two genders, male and female. None of this, this million gender stuff. And he got all of the liberals on the Supreme Court to agree with him that transgenderism is about two genders, male and female, and it's a behavioral issue. So when the religious liberty case comes up with Catholic Charities out of Philadelphia, he can go back to this decision and point to it and say, wait a second, you all just agreed there is a ministerial exception in Catholic Charities or ministerial group. They get certain protections that you agreed to in this past decision. And when the Title IX case comes of boys competing in girls' sports, claiming that they're girls, he can say, wait a second, you guys agreed unanimously on the left, on the court, that transgenderism is a, uh, is a behavioral issue between men and women and not a biology issue. And sports is about physicality, which is biology, not behavior. Physical nature is biology. It is not behavior. Therefore, that case doesn't apply, and you all already admitted it. Now, I could be completely wrong on this, and some of you will think I'm wrong, but I have read these cases. I know how to read Supreme Court cases, and I also understand we're dealing with politicians who are playing a different game from regular politicians. They are playing a legal game in the constitutional history of the United States, not in the standard day-to-day -day political history of the United States. They see the wind shifting. They know the president is vulnerable. They know if Joe Biden gets elected, he's going to add more liberals to the court, and they're trying to get ahead of all of this. And Roberts institutionally wants to protect the Supreme Court. After all the packing of conservatives on courts, you got liberals seriously considering wanting to add seats to the Supreme Court. He's got to protect the court. That's what happened. It wasn't some devious loss. Frankly, what it was is all of these cases this week are an announcement that your conservative legal revolution isn't over, but it's on pause until Donald Trump goes away. Why? Because the Trump administration routinely and repeatedly refuses to do the things it needs to do to give legitimacy to the decisions that the Supreme Court has to make. And if the Trump administration is going to treat the Supreme Court as a token tool of getting its way, the Supreme Court's going to give them the middle finger and say, no, no. We're actually a separate branch of government. You don't get to control us. That, my friends, explains your week at the Supreme Court. Well-connected and well-respected. It's Eric Erickson, live every weekday. 
Hello there. So my buddy Joe Cunningham uh, just texted me from Louisiana, and he says, I, I need you to recap the whole week for me today. I've been on vacation, and I'm about to leave for home. Y'all, I can recap the entire week for you in less than one minute. <laughs> that that sums up your week, does it not? <laughs> oh, yes. For those of you who are younger than me, that's a very old show that was on, gosh, when I was little called Hee Haw uh, that my grandparents absolutely adored. And uh, that's one of the most famous bits from it. <laughs> Gloom, despair, and agony. That is your week summed up, Joe Cunningham. I, I, I'm, I hope that helps. <laughs> now, we have other stuff that we must discuss today, uh, including, man, the, the John Bolton book is, is just enraging everybody on all sides of the aisle. And, you know, part of this is why I want to interview him, because this is a man who has blasted people in the past within the administration, in and out of the administration, for writing tell-all books. I want to make the case for secrecy in government when it comes to the conduct of national security affairs and, and possibly for deception where that's appropriate. You know, Winston Churchill said during World War II that in wartime, truth is so important it should be surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. Do you really believe that? Absolutely. You you would lie in order to preserve the truth. If, if I had to say something I knew was false to protect American national security, I would do it. I don't think we're often faced with that difficulty. But would I lie about where the D-Day invasion was going to take place to deceive the Germans? You better believe. All right, John, that, that, that's what he said in, in 2011, 2012. Why do we believe him now? Why should we believe him now? And he is the guy who has blasted people in the past for their, their writing their television. I'm just, I'm, listen, I have always admired John Bolton. I, I have. And I'm just fascinated. He would not only write a tell-all book, but if things are that bad, why didn't he come forward? I I would be interested in knowing. Now, the other thing we have today, and I want to spend a little bit on this when we come back, is Juneteenth. What is it? Many people are waking up today. You know, so today is is a holiday at my office. It was not a holiday three days ago, and and as of two days ago, it became a holiday. And people were really upset if I was going to take off work today, um, having to scramble and try to find guest hosts and everything else. And nope, I, I told him I would work. This is my evening show, my morning show. Eh, maybe I should have declared today a holiday here at the morning show, but I made everybody work so the rest of you wouldn't have to work. But in this evening, it, it's suddenly a holiday for a lot of people. And the question is, importantly, um, what is it? The president seems to think he's the one who made it important. 
And what do you do about all the paintings of people tied to the Confederacy in Washington, D.C.? And is there a level of hypocrisy among the Democrats on this when we come back? It is me. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson. I want to spend a few moments with you on Juneteenth. Today is Juneteenth. Uh, Wikipedia helpfully says a portmanteau. It is is a combination of the words June and 19th. By the way, phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Juneteenth is the day that Gordon Granger, the Union Army General, announced in Texas that the slaves were free. Now, this is a a, a somewhat interesting historic quirk in that um, Abraham Lincoln had signed the Emancipation Proclamation two and a half years earlier, but Texas was, uh, well, Galveston, Texas, was remote, rural, hard to get to, and you had to go through uh, Confederate territory to get there, and they weren't able to get there until after the Confederacy had fallen. And so you still, even though the, 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 the Civil War was over, Lincoln was dead and the slaves were free down in, in South Texas. There were still slaves uh, in slavery and Gordon Granger announced, went down there and announced they were free. And in Texas for a long time, it has been a state holiday. It has not been a federal holiday. There is now a move to uh, to make it a national holiday. And many corporations in America are to signal their support for black lives uh, is, have decided that they will take it as all day. And, you know, I, I actually am, am one of those people who have long wondered why it wasn't. Uh, we we do not celebrate the end of the Civil War. We we have Memorial Day, you know. So the the world we're we're kind of opposite, given our history and the Civil War. the The rest of the world treats November eleventh as a Memorial Day, as a Remembrance Day, uh, for World War One. World War One ended on the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month. And so that's one of those few, you know, you got a lot of holidays that, oh, we'll do it on a a Monday. We'll observe the Monday. No, uh, Remembrance Day or what we have as Veterans Day in this country is always November 11th because that was the end of the war to end all wars. That didn't actually do that, but uh, you get the point. Well, the reason we have Veterans Day on November 11th instead of a Memorial Day or a Remembrance Day, as every other country does, is because of the Civil War. We already have a Memorial Day. So many soldiers on both sides, Union and Confederate, died. And the last Monday of May is always Memorial Day. We don't celebrate the end of the Civil War. We, we don't actually celebrate the day that Lee surrendered to Grant. Uh, And we probably should, but given what happened immediately following the Civil War and Reconstruction, of course, and the re-entry of Confederates, uh, they would be pouring salt on the wound to those that that they really wanted to get back together. And and you miss this historically, and I don't think you can miss this historically, but everyone does. No one likes to talk about it. But the fact of the matter is, after the Civil War, they wanted to so quickly reunite the country. I mean, you had whole families divided by the Civil War. Fathers against sons, sons against mothers, mothers against daughters, daughters against brothers. Uh, and it, it, it was div- super divisive. 
and they didn't want to pour salt on the wound. Uh, the reason I always think that you need to treat uh, Robert E. Lee differently than from a lot of Confederates, like, um, uh, I mean, you, you pick your Confederate soldier. Um, the reason I think you got to treat Lee differently from so many of them is because Lee dedicated himself after the war to repairing the wounds and, and healing the nation and uh, becoming the chancellor at William and Lee and, uh, or uh, Washington and Lee. And he, I personally, I, I, I treat Robert E. Lee differently. He was wrong and fought against the United States. And then after the war dedicated himself to putting the country back together again. Uh, and yes, was there bad there? Absolutely. Let we don't, but, I'm not going to judge Robert E. Lee right now in 21st century lens, uh, given what was going on at the time. But there is a reason we don't celebrate the end of the Civil War, and it is for that history. But I have long thought Juneteenth would be the perfect day to be able to celebrate something like that, given the history of it, given the significance of the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, either celebrate the day of final ratification of the 14th Amendment or celebrate Juneteenth. And it looks like the nation as a whole is moving towards uh, June 19th, which is a good thing. Uh, you will not get, I, I believe, uh, most of your, uh, I, I think they're suspending postal delivery. To, I can't remember. I, th I can't remember they're treating it as a postal holiday or not, but they should. Uh, Congress should treat Juneteenth as a holiday. And we should remember it. My wife and I were actually having this conversation this morning. She read a book. Uh, in, in fact, hang on, let me, let me, let me find the name of the book because she here, – here's part of the problem. Can we have an honest conversation for a moment? Because everybody says they want you to have honest conversations. Then you have honest conversations and they burn you to the ground. Hi, Lou Giglio. Um, Got to have an honest conversation about this stuff. There are a lot of people out there, and, and later in the show, and, and please stick around, we, we need to discuss um, the whole Black Lives Matters movement, not the statement, but the movement. Uh, but – there are a lot of people out there with books on race and racial reconciliation and a most of the overwhelmingly they want to use it as an attempt to further political solutions that benefit themselves. They're not so much interested in racial reconciliation. Well, I, I don't want to Im, Im, impute bad motives to them. They, they believe essentially have gotten it in their head that the only way to have racial reconciliation in the United States is for you to agree to their agenda, for you to bend the knee to them. And that's deeply problematic in my mind because I don't think a rejection of capitalism gives you some sort of equality, and that's what a lot of these activists want. And my wife has been trying to find resources uh, where, where, you know, everybody says you got to listen, you got to listen, and she's got friends of hers from high school. She graduated from, from uh, Carrollton High School in Carrollton, Georgia, and she has a number of friends of hers who are black from high school who she follows them on social media. And when all this started happening weeks ago after the George Floyd stuff, they started recounting stories that have happened in their lives and the lives of their children and, and their parents. And, and my wife had never heard of this stuff. And she wanted to learn more. And we wanted to be very careful about where you go, what do you find, uh, who do you talk to? And one of the books that she found uh, that she settled upon, actually. We, I, I talked to a couple of pastor friends of mine who are good 
conservative pastors um, and because, you know, some of these things take a religious angle and really they're, they're not really religious. They're not really believers in the Bible. They're just trying to use it to get in. Uh, but one that, that multiple pastor friends of mine recommended was a book by a lady named Latasha Morrison. And the book, Christy, listen to the audiobook of it. The book is Be the Bridge. And it takes a, a faith perspective on racial reconciliation. Now, I, I got some friends of mine who would argue that it is um, it's bad to, to engage in this stuff, that, that you shouldn't, that we should just move on. But look, I, I think there is a movement in the country of people who are deeply interested uh, in the in the questions and in the answers and in the solutions and what can be done. But you got to use a level of discernment. I, I mean, the, the level of discernment you have to use in this stuff is is remarkable because of the number of people who are peddling things that are all about political agendas that really have nothing to do with reuniting the country or, or uh, explaining to those of us who are white the perspective of black Americans in the country that we can be empathetic to uh, if we understood. But, you know, there's also this this at some point you get to a level of empathy uh, where they want you to empathize in such ways where you've got to abandon your values, your faith or your your ideas for what would actually make the country better. And, and, and you're not a, a true empathizer if you don't do this. Uh, the number of people who would have you believe you've got to embrace socialism to be empathetic to the black experience of the United States is amazing, and most of them are little white liberals. You know, so I noted yesterday, I, I had this moment yesterday where um, I noted on social media that that I totally got the Aunt Jemima thing. The Uncle Ben thing, I did not understand. Uh, in fact, when I was a kid, I had a friend uh, move back from Dubai to rural Louisiana, and I had a friend of mine who was black whose mother would buy Uncle Ben's rice because, and she's very open about it, um, this is a, a black man who made it to the front of the box. And that, that is, that was a big thing. And uncle Ben was somebody she could, she could point. I, I, the, we all knew he wasn't real, but he, in any event, uh, I didn't know the, the history of uncle Ben. And, and yesterday I, I, I put on Twitter, I, I get Aunt Jemima, I don't get uncle Ben. It was amazing to me the number of 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 white people who wanted to lecture me. In fact, this is the, 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 the darndest thing to me. How many of you? have been overwhelmingly lectured in the past few weeks by white people about the black experience in America. I have seen more white people tell me what black books I should read and what black movies I should watch to understand the black experience in America. Where are all the black people to tell me this stuff? Why is it good little white liberals telling me this stuff? It really is amazing. In fact, I was listening to a, I was listening to a conversation Yesterday in a podcast, I was driving up to Habersham County yesterday and was listening to a podcast of, of a um, black pastor talking to a, a young white guy, and he was laughing about this phenomenon, the, the number of white people who suddenly want to tell him his history. <laughs> of course. Of course. I just, wow. Yep. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., there is a call to remove the name of Robert Byrd from a college health center. The Robert C. Byrd uh, Health Center at the uh, University of West Virginia, or no, 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 it's not University of West Virginia. Let me pull up the actual um, story here instead of reading the summation of it uh, from 
KCRG in West Virginia. A West Virginia college says it is removing the name of the late U.S. Senator Robert C. Byrd from its health center, saying his name has caused division and pain. Bethany College President Tamara Roddenberg made the announcement Wednesday on the school's website. A school statement said removing the name from the Robert C. Byrd Health Center will demonstrate the college's capacity to change, listen, learn. Byrd was a member of the KKK in the 40s. He subsequently denounced the organization, but you will recall even in, in Congress he was prone to say racist things. Uh, he was a member of the KKK. He filibustered the Civil Rights Act. And uh, there are multiple rooms in the U.S. Capitol designated Robert C. Byrd rooms. And Pelosi and Schumer now want to remove Confederate paintings and statues from Congress. They want to get rid of all of these statues of Confederates. Why not get rid of Robert Byrd? I mean, you have this grand mythology that the left tells themselves to make themselves feel superior that, you know, all the racists would be Republicans today. And that's not really true. You know, George Wallace remained a Democrat until the day he died. He left the Democratic Party to run as a segregationist and then came back into the Democratic Party and became uh, governor of Alabama as a Democrat. You actually had some woman writing in GQ a while back that, that uh, even George Wallace became a Republican. No, he actually stayed a Democrat. Robert Byrd not only stayed a Democrat, but was the president pro tem of the Senate as a Democrat, was in the KKK and, and said multiple racist things, even on TV up until he died. And the Democrats don't want to touch that. Uh, there is a level of hypocrisy and political opportunism in what they are doing on Capitol Hill, these Democrats. And, and you should be mindful of that. Many of the people who say we need to do all sorts of things really are just posing. Like, for example, Amy Klobuchar. Let, let's roll the tape. You know, Lawrence, uh, I have never, as you probably know, on many, many shows um, since I endorsed uh, the vice president on that joyful night in Dallas, I've never commented on this process at all. Um, but let me tell you this, after uh, what I've seen in my state, what I've seen across the country, uh, this is a historic moment. And America must seize on this moment. And I truly believe, uh, as I actually told the vice president last night uh, when I called him, uh, that I think this is a moment uh, to put a woman of color on that ticket. And there are so many incredibly qualified women. Um, but if you want to heal this nation right now, my party, yes, but our nation, uh, this is sure a hell of a way to do it. So Amy Klobuchar now says oh, a woman of color should be the vice presidential nominee. Amy Klobuchar, the woman who chose not to prosecute the police officer years ago when she was a prosecutor, uh, did not prosecute the, the police officer who put his knee on George Floyd's neck. Pretty sure she's not going to be the nominee. So now she's like, oh, let's have a woman of color. Now that I know it's not going to be me, but she doesn't want to say that part out loud, but that's exactly what it is. This is political opportunism. She would kill to be, I mean, she would stab someone with her hair, with her comb after eating salad just to be the vice president. But now she knows it's not going to be her. So now that it's not going to be her, we can give it to a woman of color. Political opportunism. Honest news and conservative views. Never separated from the truth. It's the Eric Erickson Show.
Look, I, I would love to take credit for I'm really disappointed in myself right now. I, I'm, I really am. I, and I got to give uh, credit to my buddy Brent, who wants to know about Elizabeth Warren. I mean, is, is Elizabeth Warren now going to try to stand up and say, hey, have you seen my DNA test? I'm not a white woman. <laughs> uh, yeah, or is she going to have another DNA test? And, and this time she's going to try to find um, that, that, that she's black or Hispanic or Asian or, or something else to say, see, 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 I'm not a white woman. <laughs> you know, I just... There's, she, she's, you know, she's not happy in the Senate. Apparently, uh, she, she really would prefer not to be in the Senate, and uh, she was really hoping to be vice president. But man, are they? They are making it very hard for her to be able to to be vice president. Now she's gonna have to have. I mean, she's gonna have to have another DNA test. That's what it is. Uh, my goodness. Uh, by the way. I wish to remind you guys of something. I, I want to, in, instead of doing a formal or, or kind of a, an in-passing reference on this, I, I've mentioned it all week long. I want to be very explicit with you. And and the reason I want to be very explicit with you is because uh, I actually have friends coming tomorrow, and I had to go into the pantry this morning to make sure I had some because they want to believe that I actually have it. And I do. It's my Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. They do sponsor the program. Uh, this is not the segment, in, so I get a little sheet every day of, hey, remember to mention the sponsor here, there, or, or wherever. And, and But I'm mentioning them now because literally I got a text message during commercial break. We have a friend coming this weekend. He says, I'm checking your pantry to make sure you actually have this stuff. I do. I guess I should put a picture on Instagram as proof for people. Uh, <laughs> but you should go get your Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce. Uh, in fact, if you go to their website, uh, you can put an order on their website uh, and get Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce, mrsgriffins.com, uh, I believe it is. Uh, but you can go to your local store here in Georgia. Um, my Publix across the street has a shelf of it, and they stock it themselves right now. They, Mrs. Griffin's been going all over the state. I was actually this past weekend in uh, at Lake Burton at the Ingalls there. They had it. You can find it all over the state of Georgia. It is the oldest commercially manufactured barbecue sauce in America, and it is made right here in Georgia. You want to support local Georgia products? Well, Mrs. Griffin's is a way to do it. And many of you, I continue to be amazed at the number of you who know what it is and, and have discovered it. Uh, but uh, I was in Habersham County last night. There is an Ingalls uh, in Clarksville. You can get it there, uh, and you can get it at the one up in Clayton as well. Um, man, uh, y'all, Okay. I don't want to do tourism industry for, for a, and I don't want to listen. Y'all know I Rome. I love you. You know, I love you. Uh, and, and, in Pickens County, I love you guys. Uh, and, and Blue Ridge, we used to go to Blue Ridge. I don't think my family's going to Blue Ridge anymore. And, and no disrespect to those of you in Blue Ridge where it's gorgeous. Uh, but Lake Burton is so much prettier than, uh, Lake Blue Ridge and, Clayton and Clarksville and that area, I I have just been, I've spent uh, multiple days this past week up in Northeast Georgia, uh, in Clayton and in Clarksville. I went up to Tiger, uh, hung out on Lake Burton, and I, I'm just, I'm amazed. It is small town America in a way that is thriving that you wouldn't realize, uh, re-energized downtowns. Uh, a lot of people coming in, you've got the fly fishing outfitter shops, uh, the furniture stores, the the restaurants. Y'all, y'all, if you haven't seen the live stream, let me clue you in on something. I'm fat. 
Um, I'm going to CrossFit. I'm working on it, but I like to eat. I like my food. That's why I like my Miss Griffith's barbecue sauce. I love to smoke Boston butt and, and uh, wings, and it goes great with it. But, man, the restaurants in, in Clarksville and in Clayton are incredible. I, I kid you not, if you have not been to Clayton, Georgia, there is a place downtown, Universal Junction. I believe that's the name of it, Universal Junction, U-Junction, they call it. And I have been to multiple parts of Texas, and I have had brisket tacos in Texas, and I've never had them as good as I had them there. They were amazing. They, they genuinely, that the guy who owns that place, uh, he is not a, a international celebrity chef. It, he should be, it was great. And in, uh, Clarksville last night, they had, they had, uh, what is it? Brownies by faith. And uh, so I'm a sucker for a blondie, you know, a blondie is, is a blonde brownie and I could have eaten the whole tray. I, I was glad people wanted to, to come talk to me or I would have been stuffing my face all night. Uh, the barbecue was, everything was good. Um, and, and just, it, it was, it was small town America done right. And I, I really, really, really liked it up there. Uh, I did. I was so glad I got to go hang out in Clarksville last night, uh, and in Clayton last weekend. It was nice. If you haven't been up there, go check it out, but save me a spot because I don't want you people to be going up there. So I can't get a reservation anywhere up there anymore. When we come back, we got to talk about the Georgia legislature. Hello, America. How are you? It's Eric Erickson here. It's my show. If you didn't know, the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Glad to have you with me. I want to spend some time on the Georgia legislature this hour, but before I do, actually, I think kind of a big deal. Uh, Bill Torpy, who is a writer at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who is definitely uh, of the left, has a pretty amazing column at the AJC, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I guess I could actually call it the Urinal-Constipation here, but I won't. A friend of mine is now the publisher, and she's a just just wonderful person. So I want to spend a little bit of time here. It's as plain as the spectacle. This is Bill Torpy. It's as plain as the spectacles on Paul Howard's face. The Fulton County District Attorney is... Well, I won't use that word, even though it's in the paper, uh, using his office to hang on to his job. Wednesday's news conference, where Howard announced charges against two Atlanta cops, was a travesty. It was a wounded candidate using the death of a man killed by police to weave together a series of bald-faced prevarications and obfuscations to get past a challenger who has him on the ropes. Before the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and now Rashard Brooks protests and disturbances, Howard's 24-year career as DA looked like toast. There were allegations of sexual impropriety with subordinates. The Georgia Bureau of Investigation is criminally investigating him for paying himself $195,000 of City of Atlanta funds, funneled through a nonprofit he headed, one set up to combat youth violence. A week before the June 9th primary, Howard moved quickly to criminally charge six Atlanta cops who used tasers on two college kids. Now reassigned Atlanta Police Chief Erica Shields, who'd quickly fired two of the cops, called out Howard as a crass, calculating politician, but he was just getting warmed up. 
Whether those arrests gave Howard a bump in the primary election is unknown, but he came in second to his former assistant, Fannie Willis, 42 to 35, and now heads into a bitter runoff. Willis may have raked in more campaign contributions than Howard, as many former backers say it's time for him to go, but he knows the killing of a black man by a white police officer is worth untold publicity, especially if he can paint himself as a warrior for civil rights. Howard's announcement on the charges was broadcast nationally on CNN, which carried live footage of an empty courtroom for 20 minutes, allowing the district attorney to build dramatic anticipation. The news conference, which looked more like a manipulative campaign speech, was a series of ridiculous statements bordering on the absurd. For starters, let's try out Howard's idyllic description of Brooks, who was found passed out in his car in a Wendy's drive through Brooks, he said, was peacefully sleeping in his car, was calm, cordial, and cooperative, and never presented himself as a threat. Even though Mr. Brooks was slightly impaired, his demeanor during the incident was almost jovial, Howard said. For 41 minutes and 17 seconds, he followed every instruction. He answered the questions. It's true. The legally drunk Brooks never presented himself as a threat until he suddenly started fighting two cops, punched one, gave another a concussion, stole one of their tasers, ran, and then tried to shoot it at Garrett Rolfe the cop being charged with murder. Howard sounded like a defense attorney reasoning my client was an absolute sweetheart um, until he hit the victim with a hammer. Another Howardism hints that it was the cop's fault that Brooks started fighting. The cops, he said, never informed Brooks that he was under arrest as required by the Atlanta Police Department. Then he grabbed from the rear by Officer Rolfe, who made an attempt to physically restrain him after the 41-minute and 17-second discussion. It was one of our important considerations that Mr. Brooks never presented himself as a threat. But according to the video, Rolf told Brooks, all right, I think you've had too much to drink to be driving, so put your hands behind your back for me. Three seconds later, all hell broke loose. Here's another one. We have also concluded that Rolf was aware that the taser in Brooks's possession, that it had was fired twice and once it's fired twice it presented no danger to him or any other person it's extremely doubtful amid the commotion that rolf had any clue how many times the other police officer's taser was fired again howard now we have had something quite remarkable that happened in this case and it involves the testimony of the other officer darren devin brosnan because officer brosnan has now become a state's witness now, Atlanta defense attorney Don Samuel, who represents Brosnan, almost fell out of his chair hearing that and fired off a message saying it was absolutely untrue and shame on the district attorney for abusing his charging power. The GBI sent out a statement saying that it would needed to be impartial and conduct a thorough investigation and hadn't conducted the investigation yet. Howard noted Rolf's case could qualify for the death penalty, although it had none of the aggravating factors in Georgia. And Howard said he will no longer seek the death penalty. Howard, who had three or four, who has three or four old cop shooting cases, moldering unfinished, said he could move this case quickly because it was all on videotape. He tossed aside complaints. He was politicizing this. And this goes, uh, this column goes on. Uh, and yes. Doug Collins has asked Attorney General Chris Carr to appoint a special independent prosecutor. Uh, Chris Carr says he doesn't actually have the power to do that. Um, and uh, Chris Carr says, uh, if I remember right, don't I'm paraphrasing and it was a tweet. So there you go. Uh, but Chris Carr, there's got to be a an actual indictment on the DA 
to for Chris Carr to have the power to remove him. He can't just remove a DA under investigation. He's got to actually, there's got to be an indictment. See, this is the thing. If you remember, um, what's his name? Um, um, Beck, the, the insur- Jim Beck, the insurance commissioner. Uh, the insurance commissioner, the governor could remove Jim Beck uh, from in the insurance commissioner case, or the insurance commissioner's office, because Jim Beck has been indicted. Paul Howard has not been indicted, so he can't be removed yet. He's just under investigation. Uh, by the way, on, on the Jim Beck thing, I, I understand that uh, the U.S. attorney intends to fully pursue this case, but uh, given the coronavirus, everything is on hold. So um, there's that case. But in this one, it really is clear. And see, can, can I want to go on a man? I got to be careful how I do this one. You know, I, I'm. I speak for five hours a day, on the radio. And I, I, I actually is. Um, it, 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 there is a level of, you no. Know, I was talking to a buddy of mine who's done talk radio way longer than me, is way more famous than me, who really never cares about the outrage mob, and even he was saying uh, yesterday that that he's he wants to double check stuff before he says anything because. I mean, everybody's coming for you, but I, I want to say something that may get me in trouble. Except the way I've done this show, I've got protections. Um, yeah. Yeah, let me say this. Let me tell you one of the things that I mentioned in the first hour. One of the things that just, it makes me laugh. It doesn't make me mad. It doesn't make me annoyed. It makes me laugh. The number of white people who want to tell me what books I should read and shows I should watch to appreciate black culture. It's not black people telling me these things. It's white people. It's white people telling me which restaurants I should go eat at to support the black community. How's about I watch the TV shows I want to watch and eat at the restaurants I want to eat at and support people along the way? and choose not to to uh, judge people by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. How about you not tell me uh, that I'm, I'm not in allyship unless I am out protesting in the streets? I mean, this has become, Al Mohler was here yesterday, and Al Mohler was telling me that, uh, we, we were largely agreeing, we were telling each other, about how what's happening in secularism these days is that uh, they are becoming a religion with rite and ritual in secularism that mirrors a uh, regular old-time religion. You go to protest now instead of church. Your sacrament is to write a check to Planned Parenthood or have an abortion. And now with this, you see the elements of religion shaping up here. It's not just that you can be a good person. I mean, this is the, what Christianity says. It's not just that you can be a good person. In Christianity, you must repent and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to get into heaven, to have salvation. No, now on the left, it's not enough to be a good person who doesn't see race. No, you have to see race. Recognize that as a white person, you have to have allyship and do certain things. What if you do those things, but you don't want to be a member of some left-wing organization? 
Are, are you allowed to do that? I I am I'm I'm kind of tired of the lectures from white people, not 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 from the black community, but from white progressives telling me what I must do. You know what I must do? I'll tell you what I must do. I must love my neighbor and I must do unto others as I want them to do unto me. And I must seek the welfare of the city in which I live and pray for it because there I'll find my welfare. And I must honor my mother and father. And I must not covet and I must not steal and I must not murder and I must not bear false witness. And I must honor the Sabbath and I must have no other gods before me except the God of all creation. That's what I must do. In fact, that's what all of us must do. And if all of us did that, all of these problems would go away. But nope, now I've, I've got a bunch of white people lecturing me on what I must do for allyship. And by the way, that's a dumb word, allyship. Let's, hey, let, let's, let's, um, let, 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 let's merge all these words. We, we, want, we want you not to ally with us, but to allyship with us. Where is my allyship? Does it have wings and rockets? Did Elon Musk build it? I want to be a good neighbor. I want my kids to judge people by their character and their integrity, not by the color of their skin or their gender. I want them to be kind to everyone. I want to shop at the businesses I want to shop at. And I don't want to say, oh, well, I have to make a special priority to go to this business because this business owner is not white. No, I want to go to the businesses that sell the best products and have the best food. And I don't want a bunch of of white millennial liberals from college campuses dictating what TV shows I can watch or, or what stores I can go to. And you know what, if, if someone from the black community wants to come to me and say, you know, I, I think you're really missing an aspect of this and you should consider, I want to consider that person's opinion. But but the woke white college kids who are toppling the George Washington statues, I, I couldn't care less what they think about this stuff. But the whole idea that somehow I've got to feel guilty and if I'm not feeling guilty, I'm part of the problem. And, and if you say you're not a racist, by God, you're a racist. Yeah, I'm, 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 I will check out of this so fast. We got problems in the country and the people who are coming up with the solutions are proving themselves to be unserious people who none of you should. And, and frankly, you know, the moral of the story here is that if you have someone who identifies what their preferred pronoun is, don't take those people seriously. And right now we got a bunch of white people who are telling us they are, are, are he, him, or, or they, which that's the most ridiculous one. Someone who identifies a single person who identifies as they, and the media bends over backwards to talk about, about, uh, Jezebel said they, no, it's not the way it works. It is it, this this ridiculousness. And all these people wanted to be about themselves. And really, that, that's what this is about. It's not actually about solving racism in the United States. It's not actually about undoing historic injustices or making people aware. It's about these kids who want to find salvation through something other than Jesus Christ who are out there marching in the streets trying to make them feel good about it. And then you know what they're going to do? They're going to go around and they're going to hang out with all of their friends of the same race and socioeconomic status who believe exactly the same thing and feel good about all of themselves because they went out and ally shipped with somebody else in the streets that they would otherwise have no contact with. 
It's all about posing. It's not actually about problem solving. You want to solve the problem? I can give you the solution real quick to solve the problem. I've already said it. Seek the welfare of your community. Go find the homeless shelter. Go find the battered women's shelter. Go find the the, the uh, after-school clinic where you can volunteer your time to tutor kids. Go work in a, an inner-city school and be a volunteer. Love your neighbor, and your neighbor is not just your physical next-door neighbor. It is the people in your community, the homeless man, the black man, the white man, the white woman, the black woman, the Asian, uh, the gay person, the straight person. Love that person. And do to those people what you would want them to do to you. You do that, you'll be on your way. Don't let these people guilt you into having to go do other stuff and support certain causes uh, just because it makes these white liberal kids feel good. Uh, why is it that white liberal kids are always the one to hijack this stuff and, and get the media attention? Probably because the media is a bunch of white liberal woke kids too. I just, you want to make real change in this country? Just be nice to everyone. And stop looking at people and, and, and judging them by the color of their skin. But, oh, now they want you to judge people by the color of their skin because, you know, that you, you've got all the, these uh, woke people now saying, oh, we're never going to have a colorblind society, so let's own the, the color. And no, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. As Martin Luther King said, judge people by the content of their character and stop trying to guilt people into doing stuff your way. Well-connected and well-respected. It's Eric Erickson, live every weekday. Well, I feel better. I hope you do. We got other stuff to talk about. They continue. Man, I got, let, let me give you this news. This is from uh, WRGA News up in Rome. Uh, oh, my goodness. I, always, I pull up their website and I always see my face. It's so disconcerting. I have such a face for radio. Uh, it, it, there were fewer first-time claims for unemployment insurance in May when compared to April. The number is still high. Uh, now, this is the for the, the northwest Georgia area, but according to the Georgia Department of Labor, Floyd County saw 7,309 initial claims last month, down from 12,549 the month before. There were just 301 in May of 2019. Bartow County filed 9,161 claims, down from 16,521. Uh, Gordon's uh, County was down. Polk County was down. Uh, Chattooga County was down. These are all great. And the trend line is the same around the state. I didn't have time to pull up all of all of the numbers, but you know th this reminds me of Christy Romans, who is on CNN uh, and is an economist uh, by training. Uh, was talking about the retail sales surge. Listen to this. We do have some breaking news right now. Stronger than expected retail sales in May, as American consumers spend more and ease restrictions. CNN chief business correspondent Christine Romans has the numbers for us. How does retail look? You know, this was a bigger than expected jump here. 17.7% was the jump uh, in the month in terms of retail sales. We've never seen a number like that. Never seen a number like that. The retail sales. We never saw the the, the crash in unemployment uh, and, and seeing this massive jump. It is really, really good. The economy is coming back. And it's, it's, it's. Oh, am I allowed to say this without being a conspiracy theorist? It's notable that the protests have subsided. The economic news is, is coming out. And as the economic news comes out, you have all sorts of comeback of concern about the virus. So the, the protesting is largely wound down. And the economy continues to fire and suddenly there's concern again about the virus. I, I, I y'all, 
I don't think it is a majority of members of the media, but I am fairly well convinced at this point that there is a significant portion of the media that wants to continue to scare everyone. And, and by the way, I, I, if you've listened to this program, you know I take the virus seriously. I do. I think it's a concern. But I also think there are people who are, um, they are, are amplifying worries and fears to try to slow down and suppress the economy because they think an economic rebound will hurt, hurt the president. I, and I listen, I think they're right that an economic rebound or, or will help the president. Uh, I think they're right that it helps the president. Uh, here, let's see, do I have time to play? I don't. When we come back, I want to talk about the economy. And I do want to get into the Georgia legislature. Man, some Republicans are starting to really freak out about the the hate crimes bill. And the more I'm learning about, the more concerned I am about it. And we're going to have to keep up the pressure with the state legislature on the hate crimes legislation. Um, Jeff Duncan's legislation, the, the more I dig into it, the more I talk to people, they're just all kind of horrified and are wondering, what is this guy doing with the hate crimes legislation? And um, I, I want to walk you through some of what he's doing and some of the concerns of members of the legislature that uh, essentially they think this could be stirring up the mob. One of the provisions would allow citizens to swear out a warrant to convene a grand jury to investigate a hate crime, which is not a good thing to do. Uh, and they don't want to put police in as a protected class. No one wants to put the police in. as a. Have you seen what is happening to police around this country right now? I think it's time to protect the police as a protected class. If, if we're going to go down the road of hate crimes legislation, we should do that. Let's discuss all this when we come back. I'll take your phone calls as well, 877-97-ERIC. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. I, before I before I get to uh, the the legislature, as promised, I do want to play this clip from Larry Kudlow talking about the recovery numbers that are out there. The numbers actually are really good and should give people encouragement. The unemployment claims fell for the eleventh straight week. It's a good sign. We're gonna have job numbers in June, and I think will be very strong. Uh, I agree with Stephen. I think the rescue plan worked. I think the PPP was superhuman, probably saved 55 million jobs, and we saw that with a three million, uh, three million job increase in the May numbers. I compile my list of green shoots, sir. We've got <clears throat> uh, Apple Mobility for traveling almost back to its pandemic, pre-pandemic high. Uh, home builder demand and confidence is very, very strong. Uh, automobiles, car sales, are moving from 8.6 million to 12.2 million as the factories uh, reopen. As you noted, the retail sales number was a spectacular uh, 18%. Michigan consumer expectations, very strong today. NFIB optimism index, expect economy to improve, a record jump. Expect economy to improve, a record jump. And manufacturing, the Philly Fed and the New York Fed, uh, future activity indexes are off the charts. If I play reference to the Congressional Budget Office, if we get a 20% increase in Q3, which I think is quite possible, a uh, 20% increase in Q4, and a 5% increase in Q1 2021, we will be back to where we were in 2019. We will have made up for the lost ground. Amazing. It's not going to take That's five amazing. years. We will have made it up with some decent numbers by the first quarter of 2021. 
That's called the Super V, right? Super V. I like the eyes. It's called the V. It's called the V plus. <laughs> there you go. The economy is rebounding, and as a result, now you're starting to hear the the media come back out. Oh, woe is me on on the virus. I, I do have to tell you, uh, the virus is breaking out again all over the state of Georgia. Um, you know, listen, y'all. I know some of you are sensitive to the requirements to wear masks in places. And I was in Habersham last night. I was kind of surprised nobody wore a mask. Um, but the the facility was great, um, mostly outside. It was okay. They, they don't have a lot of cases in, in Habersham County. Um, there are parts of the state, though, where the virus really is on the rise and people need to be careful. Uh, let me give you an example of this. So let me look at Habersham County. Uh, in Habersham County, I mean, there. Let's see. On uh, June eighth, there were thirteen positive cases, uh, and the next day there were five. Um, and th- they've never really had the the highest they ever had was ten cases in Habersham County, and the the trend line in Habersham County is down. Uh, but when you go to Troop County, Troop County in the LaGrange area, the number is is spiking pretty significantly. The the seven day moving average is is skyrocketing, and in Georgia overall, the number is going back up. And so where you are in the state matters. Uh, in fact, if you want to see the, these charts, uh, I don't have any sort of special Gnostic knowledge here. You can text the word data to three three seven seven seven. And I'll text you right back the links. You'll also get a link to Al Mohler's book. I interviewed him yesterday. But you'll be able to see the Georgia number, and, and you'll be able to see the IHME model. Remember the IHME model had been revised downward in Georgia by August 1st. There would be like 18 cases, and now it's thousands. It's like people gave up and, and decided, you know what, let's not treat this seriously anymore. Um, the number of confirmed preliminary cases for June 8th in Georgia is 1,013, which is an all-time high. Now, what's going to happen is that's going to revise downward uh, as they sort those and put them in the proper dates. But uh, we're not doing well anymore in the state. And it corresponds to two things, not the governor reopening the state. It corresponds to Memorial Day weekend travel, and it corresponds to the protests. We are seeing an increase because of the protests. And have you noticed that the media doesn't want to make that case? The media doesn't want to point out uh, that a lot of the growth in the virus that you're seeing in the state of Georgia has everything to do with the protesters. And that's actually what's going on here. In fact, the media is more focused on rural Georgia. There's, There's a huge outbreak in rural Georgia. Um, there's a huge outbreak in Gwinnett County and in Fulton and the like, uh, and it has everything to do with the protesters having protested together, uh, which should does raise some legit concerns about the president having a rally. I mean, there, there really are uh, concerns about the president and his rally and, and uh, legitimate concerns. But here's a, um, this is a, a new cases of coronavirus are spiking in Gwinnett County, which recently overtook Fulton County as the jurisdiction with the highest number of cases, according to county level, level public health data. This map of cases by zip code and per thousand residents shows the hot spots in Gwinnett and several others in Fulton. Uh, now, now, where are these hot spots in, in the Fulton and, and Gwinnett area? Well, let's see. 
uh, right around the DeKalb County area uh, in the Decatur area is is a big hot spot where they had protesters. <gasps> Are we allowed to point that out? Uh, just it, it's it's you got to point that stuff out now. What else is going on? Well, there are other things going on out there, and we really do need to spend some time on this legislative stuff. I've been teasing you long enough. Let's get to it. So Jeff Duncan's hate crimes legislation is starting to freak out people. There was a hearing uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee where they've refused to give a hearing to it in in the past. They actually had a hearing on the Georgia Anti-Hate Crimes Act, which is the House's version of the hate crimes legislation. The House's version really isn't significant, and it doesn't protect uh, people's faith, which is a problem when you have it at a time that churches and synagogues have both been attacked in what would be called hate crimes in this legislation. To ignore uh, religion is a problem. It would cover, well, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, it, this it, it would cover religion. I got that wrong. I'm sorry. Uh, the Georgia House in 2019 approved House Bill 426. Uh, they amended it. The last time it didn't, this time it does. Uh, so it would give sentencing guidelines for anyone convicted of targeted victim based on race, color, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, mental disability, or physical disability. Georgia is one of only four states without such law and powerful corporate interests. It is amazing how we can be held hostage to corporations. Well, here's the problem with Jeff Duncan. Jeff Duncan wants a more sizable uh, hate crimes proposal. And there are two schools of thought on Jeff Duncan. One is he has become a true believer on the issue and really wants to do something. The other is that he is pretending to really want to do something and hopes to scuttle it. Uh, by doing an over-the-top piece of legislation. Jeff Duncan's legislation would make a hate crime a standalone charge instead of an add-on enhancement. And I actually agree with that. Let me let me just tell you straightforwardly, I agree with Jeff Duncan that the, that a hate crime, if you're gonna if you're going to charge people for a thought crime, at least make it a standalone thing for the jury to consider. Don't let the judge or the prosecutor grandstand, and that's what's happening here, is with the with the House version, the prosecutor and the judge get to grandstand. They do, get to do a sentence enhancement. The judge gets to say at the prosecutor's arrest, well, clearly they hated the guy. Give him five more years, judge. Done. Judge pounds his gavel, and off he goes for five extra years because the, the DA is up for re-election, and the judge is too, and, and they need a case. At least make it go before the jury so the jury decides and and not the grandstanding elected politicians. But there's a problem. One of the things that the Senate version would do would be to allow individuals to uh, swear out a warrant to order the grand jury to investigate a hate crime. You don't want to give citizens that power. It will be abused on both sides. You know it and I know it. It will be terribly abused on both sides if they do that. Uh, And it's terrible. One of the other things the legislation does not do is it does not uh, protect the police as a protected class. Nor does nor does the House version, by the way, the House version doesn't protect political speech either. At a time that leftist activists on campuses are harassing conservatives to get them shut up. 
They are not willing to protect political speech. A lot of states are doing it. And, you know, the argument is, well, we have to do this in Georgia because it's one of only four states. A lot of states are willing to protect the police and political speech. If they're going to cave, and it looks like they're going to cave, at least they should protect the police. I mean, look at what Paul Howard is doing to the police officer in Atlanta. Even a liberal like Bill Torpy is outraged by it. If you want to use the Action Center to tell your member of the legislature to stand up on this, text the word ACTION to 55444. Let, let me walk you through what happens. I have this Action Center, and, and by the way, I, I, I full disclosure here, and, and let, me, let me give you a, a moment of seriousness. And th- don't, don't read this as woe is me. I just I want to explain this to you. So I do this program. I think we're now on 15 state, 13, 15 stations, somewhere in there, more than a dozen stations now in the state of Georgia with this show. Uh, I pay for it out of my own pocket, this show. Uh, the satellite fees, um, the, the, the salaries, I make nothing off this program. I, I need more advertisers uh, to be able to boost my boost the revenue of the show so that I can actually get paid for it. Now, I, I was actually telling somebody last night, they asked if I was going to get burned out. I could do this for the rest of my life for free. I love this program. Uh, I am not going to get worn out. But at some point, my wife's going to be like, you're, you're working two radio shows and you're not even getting paid for the one you spend the most time with? So I need more advertisers. I, right now, I pay for everything out of pocket. Uh, the satellite cost is 2000 bucks a month uh, to get this thing routed. So I, I, at some point, I'm going to have to have, like, I'm going to have to hire someone to be ad sales. Now, now th- this is not my l- lament. This is not for you. I'm, I'm not begging here, but, but I do want you to understand what's going to happen. One of the things that I am committed to doing is not just ranting on radio, but providing you solutions to take action on stuff. And so I pay for this thing. Uh, it is an action center. And it costs me, and again, I, I pay for this out of my pocket, uh, using the salary for my other program to subsidize this program. Uh, it's like 800 bucks a month for me to do. Um, but I can, with this system, flip a little switch, and I can make it very easy for you to contact your congressman, your senator, your state house member, your state representative, the governor, even your mayor. I've never done that one. Maybe I should. So what's going to happen is if you text the word ACTION, to 55444, you're going to get a text message almost immediately, and it's going to be a link. And when you open the link on your phone or your computer, you're gonna it's going to ask you for your name and your address. And when you do it, based on your address, it's going to say, oh, you are, for example, my state senator is John Kennedy here in, in the Macon area. And it's going to say, oh, your state senator is John Kennedy. He's on Twitter. Would you like to send John Kennedy an email? And you click yes. And I've already written a bunch of them saying, make sure the police are a protected class, Senator. I'm a constituent. And then it says he's on Twitter. Would you like to send him a tweet? And I I did that. I wrote a bunch of a variety of tweets saying, Senator, I'm a constituent. I want you to make police a protected class in the hate crimes legislation. And then, this is the coolest part of it, it says, would you like to call John Kennedy? Once you've sent the email and the tweet, then you can call him and you will hear my voice saying, hi, it's Eric Erickson. I'm going to connect you to your member of the state legislature so that you can tell him to make police a protected class. If we're not going to kill the hate crimes legislation, which we should do, at least protect police and political speech. 
Hang on, I'll connect you. And the phone rings and you get his assistant. It is remarkable technology. But here's the thing, and, and this is why I, I, I prefaced it with everything, is because you will get an email afterwards once you've done it thanking you for doing it and asking you uh, if you wouldn't mind to to chip in a few bucks to help me cover the cost of the system. Because, uh, cause, man, it's worth it. Uh, and and I, I will gladly pay for it out of my pocket. Uh, I got all this other stuff I want to pay for before I start making income because I just, I've always listened to talk radio since I, my dad and I, we were on my college tour looking at colleges back in the day. And, uh, I heard Rush Limbaugh for the first time with my dad. We were actually looking for Paul Harvey. We were driving for, I'll never forget it. We were driving through rural Alabama. Uh, we were almost to Phoenix city. We were headed over to Mercer to check out Mercer and we discovered Rush Limbaugh looking for Paul Harvey. And I just thought, you know, one day I want to do what that guy does. Now, I never had a plan to do it. God God was kind. I fell into it because a guy got arrested uh, who was a talk radio show host, and they needed somebody to fill in. They didn't know I didn't do it for a living. Uh, and, and I did. And, and so here I am all these years later. But one of the things I've always noticed about a lot of talk radio is that they, they, they're willing to rant on the problems, but they're never willing to provide you the means to fix the problem. And I just thought, you know, if I ever do a talk radio show, I, I used to do politics. And it's like, I want one of these activist portals where I can help people generate letters to the editor or letters to their congressman or call their congressman to fix problems. And I have very deliberately over the years tried to vet systems to be able to do that. And now I do. And so when you listen to the program and I'm I'm railing on a bad idea in Congress or a good idea in, in Congress or the state legislature, I've got this activist system. And you guys, if you agree with me, you can engage with it. I don't want to just get you mad. I want to be able to give you a, a, a way to fix the problem. All I can do is cover the cost of the system and make it available to you. And that is what I've done. If you really want to fix things, though, you've got to get involved. And I'll make it as easy as possible. And to make it as easy as possible... You text the word ACTION to the number 55444. You will get a link back. Follow the link and be amazed at the at the magic of doing it. Uh, it helps you generate an email and a tweet if they're on Twitter, and you can even call your state senator on this issue. And for issues that are, are that I know you guys will care about, I turn this on. I can do it to the local level, to the national level, to the state level. But there's just no reason for me, I think, for, for any talk show host, at, at this point in the 21st century, given technology, it, I just find it inexcusable that people will come on uh, TV and radio and, and get you all worked up about something and then leave you worked up with no, no way to fix it. If you really think there's a problem, you should provide a path to fix it or at least an understanding of, of how it can be fixed. And that's what I, I told myself if I ever got a radio show, that's what I would do. So here I am. I have this action center and you can use it to make sure the police are protected in hate crimes. If we can't kill the lunch, they should kill it. But if they're not going to because they're cowards and that's what's going to happen, we should at least protect the police. So text the word ACTION to 55444 and you can get into the Action Center and see it for yourself. Want to be on the show? Call Eric now at 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. Hello there. It is 55 after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. The full number is 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425. Y'all, I, I, what was that sound? That was me processing how do I 
how do I even discuss the story with you? I have a story that is newsworthy, but it's going to be awkward. And I, I need to, I, 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 okay. Do you remember the story? Oh my gosh. This has been a month or so ago in South Korea. They decided to start up the base. Y'all listen, I, I, I'm going to apologize in advance here for the story, both of them. And I'm just going to tell you, if you're driving, please keep both hands on the wheel because you may wreck when I, so in South Korea last month, they, they decided to resume baseball and they wanted to do it without the stadium fans. And they decided it was a little awkward. So they decided they would get mannequins to fill the stadium. There's a problem. Uh, the mannequins that they ordered, there was a mix up in the order and they sent, um, Adult novelty mannequins. Oh, yeah. Adult novelty mannequins. Well, so there was a problem with that because for, um, you know, for the, the male mannequins, um, they had to, they, they, it was had a hard time covering some parts for the female mannequins. They all had to wear masks, um, because of the, the shape of the mouth of the mannequins. Y'all, I wish I was making this up, and I, I'm I'm not making any of it up. It it's true. It it is true. Um, yes, the 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 old face of the of the female mannequins had to be covered with masks. Uh, the the male mannequins, well, they let's just say they had priapism, and it was a problem for the camera angles. Uh, but yeah, it happened. Well, now uh, I told you you're gonna run off the road, and I'm trying to be diplomatic here. The bold and the beautiful filmmakers are getting creative when it comes to meeting new production guidelines as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. The soap opera, which temporarily resumed production on Wednesday, may be making use of one of its old blow-up dolls on set to film <clears throat> intimate scenes moving forward. One of the producers has revealed Bradley Bell, executive producer and head writer of the long-running soap series, told the New York Post the decision was made with social distancing measures in mind. That's right. When we were reviewing the scripts, we started taking out all the romantic scenes and the script just fell flat. So we had to put the scenes back in. You know, you could actually turn one of the characters into a witch. You could be getting it on in bed and, and bite her on the neck and she farts and flies out the window. <laughs> gosh yeah that's right they're using inflatable dolls i mean you could just not do those scenes but no they said it all fell flat so they're going to actually have faith wow man y'all people are losing their minds because of this virus in hollywood <laughs> like i just i i just i had to share this my goodness gracious there will be real news when we come back i promise Hi there. How are y'all? It's Eric Erickson here. Hello, America. If you if if you missed out earlier, I just I, I want to spend a moment yet again bragging on Habersham County because I went up there for Chamber of Commerce event last night. I have never been to Clarksville before. You know, Clarksville, the WCHM in Clarksville was the first station to air all three hours of this program. They took a chance on me, and I'm so delighted because man, was it nice up there? 
Uh, I got so many invitations to go fly fishing. Tucker Carlson and Vice President Cheney have, have for years been telling me that it would be therapeutic for me to go fly fishing. And, and the Unicoi Outfitters up there last night sent me a little care package. Um, and I'm, I'm going to have to go. And, and then what was it? Um, yeah, John and, and Abby Jackson at, at Black Hawk Fly Fishing that told me they'd go up there and, and take me. Uh, fly fishing. I'm going to have to go. Man, it was just, it was, I love the mountains. You know, I, I, we go to the beach every year. We go to Hilton Head every year. One day I want a beach house and a mountain house. I got to win the lottery or at least earn money from this program. Just, I mean, I don't need a, a, a big place, just like eight bedrooms. <laughs> Take all the family and friends. Um, I, I love Hilton Head. I, I really love Hilton. I hate the beach and I love Hilton Head because there's so much to do in Hilton Head without going to the beach. The, the beach is just, uh, listen, y'all, I'm half Swedish. Uh, if I think about the sun, I, I get sunburned. I mean, I instead, I am the whitest person you will ever meet. I, I, I put on white athletic socks and they just disappear. It's, it's like camouflage. I don't like getting in the sun. Um, and then, but then I don't like bugs and snakes either, but man, I love the mountain. It's cooler in the mountains. Uh, the, the water is clear. The people are kind. It was just, it was so pretty up there. Uh, it, it really, really was. I love the mountains. Uh, there were some, there were some mountain up there and there's this ginormous house at the top of the mountain. I, was like, I want to live there. And the views are incredible. Um, but the people were nice. The food was good. It was, it was really, really, really was a great time. Uh, and I went to Rabin County last week and then Habersham County this week. And I, I could totally get myself a vacation house up there. Uh, in fact, I already heard from real estate agents saying, if you really, I don't have enough money, I'm broke. Um, I, I got to earn income from the show before I do. And then I'm, I want a house on Lake Burton. That is now a life goal. Um, I need millions apparently to do it, but it would be nice now. And nothing, and listen, you people in Macon, nothing against Tobasovsky. I go out there, but it's not Lake Burton, and you all need to acknowledge that. Now, we need to move on. I, I'm, I, I, We're going to get into controversy now. Al Mohler was on yesterday. I, listen, I, I don't really listen to a lot of podcasts, but I do like his briefing. It's very Paul Harvey-esque in how he does it. Uh, and I've talked to you guys about this before, and I keep getting questions about it. And so I, I want to talk to you about these two groups. Uh, there are two organizations uh, active on TV now in the wake of all the protests over George Floyd. One is called Black Lives Matter, and one is called the Movement for Black Lives. And we need to start, and I was listening to Al talk yesterday, and I figure it's, it's worth pointing this out to you guys as well. Black Lives Matter as a statement is a true statement. And there are a lot of you who would say all lives matter, but I, I just, you know, let me use Al's example here. In the 1930s and 40s, with the rise of Nazis in Germany, the Nazi political party, the National Socialists, yes, they were socialists. With the National Socialists in Germany, Anti-Semitism became state policy in the run-up. Before even the Holocaust began, anti-Semitism became national policy. And it would have been important for people to point out that Jewish lives matter. Because the focus of the persecution and the problems in Nazi Germany were not about Christians or Buddhists or Hindu or white people or black people or anyone. It was about Jews. 
And it would have been really important to say Jewish lives matter in Germany, to stand up and say Jewish lives matter too. So I'm not offended by people who want to say black lives matter as opposed to all lives matter. In fact, I think, frankly, and I used to not, and I've kind of come to terms with it. I, I do think if when people say black lives matter, you say all lives matter. Yeah, all lives matter. It's a statement of fact. But you know what? Not all lives are are having the, the systematic problems that we've had in this country. Not all lives have ancestors in slavery. Not all lives were impacted by Jim Crow and segregation. I'll tell you which lives were. Black lives, and they matter too. They matter just like white lives and Hispanic lives and Asian lives and uh, male lives and female lives. But you know what? The issue in the country right now is not about you. So shut up and just go along with it and say, acknowledge that black lives do matter. And I don't mean to offend any, and I realize I'm offending a lot of my listeners right now, but it just kind of aggravates, you know, just say all lives matter. Well, it's not all lives that have their knee put on your neck for eight minutes, 46 seconds. And can we not just acknowledge that without being Ick days about it, if you know your pig Latin. I mean, just just acknowledge it. The statement is factual. And in World War II, standing up and saying all lives matter in Nazi Germany really would be besides the point because it wasn't all lives at stake. It was Jewish lives. And here in this country right now, given the history of this country, it is worth saying that black lives do matter. But the statement of fact is vastly different from the organization called Black Lives Matter. And I want you to understand what we're dealing with here as major corporations start writing big checks to this organization called Black Lives Matter. Let me read for you from their own page what they say. Four years ago, What is known as Black Lives Matter Global Network began to organize. It started out as a chapter-based, member-led organization whose mission was to build local power and to intervene when violence was inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. In the years since, we've committed to struggling together and to imagining and creating a world free of anti-blackness where every black person has the social, economic, and political power to thrive. Black Lives Matter began as a call to action in response to state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. Our intention from the very beginning was to connect black people from all over the world who have shared desire for justice to act together in their communities. The impetus for this commitment was and still is the rampant and deliberate violence inflicted on us by the state. Enraged by the death of Trayvon Martin and the subsequent acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman, and inspired by the 31-day takeover of the Florida State Capitol by Power U and the Dream Defenders, we took to the streets. <clears throat> A year later, we set, our, uh, set out together on the Black Lives Matter Freedom Ride to Ferguson in search of justice for Mike Brown and all those who have been torn apart by state-sanctioned violence and anti-black racism. Now, we need to go on. What do they stand for? Well, some things that we can all agree on. Every day, we recommit to healing ourselves and each other and to co-creating alongside comrades, allies, and family, a culture where each person feels seen, heard, and supported. You can quibble with the word comrade, but you can kind of also get a hint of where this goes. But that's a fair statement. We acknowledge, respect, and celebrate differences and commonalities. We work vigorously for freedom and justice for black people and, by extension, all people. We intentionally build and nurture a beloved community that is bonded together through a beautiful struggle that is restorative, not depleting. 
We are unapologetically black in our positioning. In affirming that black lives matter, we need not qualify our position. To love and desire freedom and justice for ourselves is a prerequisite for wanting the same for others. We see ourselves as part of the global black family, and we are aware of the different ways we are impacted or privileged as black people who exist in different parts of the world. There's really nothing wrong with any of this. And then you get down further. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. Disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure? What? We foster a queer-affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. What? We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans, but what? See, this is where we're going. Several of the people who helped found the organization consider themselves Marxist. Uh, they're hostile to capitalism and Christianity. They're hostile to the nuclear family structure. They consider it Western prescribed. They're hostile to biblical sexual orthodoxy. That That's the organization Black Lives Matter. Hostile to, it, it is hostile to capitalism. It is hostile to uh, faith. It is hostile to traditional understandings of the family. It is hostile to those things. The organization, the statement of fact is true. Black Lives Matter as a sentence, as a statement of fact. The organization, though, there's a problem. And then there's the other organization as well, the movement for black lives. Let me, let me read to you about this organization, the movement for black lives, who we are. We are abolitionist. We believe that prisons, police, and other institutions that inflict violence on black people must be abolished and replaced by institutions that value and affirm the flourishing of black lives. We believe in centering the experiences and leadership of the most marginalized black people, including but not limited to those who are trans and queer, women and films, currently or formerly incarcerated, immigrants, disabled, working class, and poor. We believe in transformation and a radical realignment of power. The current systems we live inside of need to be radically transformed, which includes a realignment of global power. We are creating a proactive movement-based vision instead of a reactionary one. We build kinship with one another. We draw from political lessons, grow in our leadership, and expanding our base to build a stronger movement. We are anti-capitalist. We believe and understand that black people will never achieve liberation under the current global racialized capitalist system. Uh, system. Our movement and black communities overwhelmingly are not currently in a position to set agendas to scale, control the institutions that affect our lives, or create mechanisms to mitigate harm. This assessment should not be interpreted as a failure of our social movements, but it does expose a critical gap. Over the next five years, we have created a popular strategy rooted in transformative goals that can impact the millions of black people looking for direction and leadership in this movement. Cheaply, black governance and ultimately positioning our communities to set agendas straight at the heart of Movement for Black Lives Project 2024, Black Power Rising. And what is that? Entail, well, getting rid of capitalism, among other things. Mass engagement, local power, building across movements, a multiracial strategy, 
leadership development, an electoral strategy, and on and on it goes. And what is it about? It is about upending, upending capitalism. It is about upending uh, Western civilization. Let me read you this. We demand reparations for past and continuing harms. The government, responsible corporations, and other institutions have profited off of the harms that they inflicted on black people from colonialism to slavery through food and housing, redline, mass incarceration, and surveillance must repair the harm done. And this includes reparations for the systematic denial of access to high-quality educational opportunity in the form of full and fair access for all black people, including undocumented and currently and formerly incarcerated people, to lifetime education, including free access and open admissions to public community colleges and universities, reparations for the continued divestment from discrimination toward and exploitation of our communities, reparations from the wealth extracted from our communities. And on and on it goes. And and by the way, they actually have definitions. And you know, one, one of the definitions is, well, what is a black person? Well, a, a, a black person, according to them, because they want reparations, but a black person to them is, is only someone whose family actually descends from slavery. So it's not about someone of African descent whose family was not impacted by slavery. That's not what a black person is considered under this. It is, it, it, and you just keep listening. And on and on it goes. So we demand investments in education, health, and safety of black people instead of investments in criminalizing, caging, and harming black people. We want investments in black communities determined by black communities and divesting from exploitation from forces, uh, forces which include prisons, fossil fuels exploitive corporations. We demand economic justice for all and a reconstruction of the economy to ensure collective ownership, not just access. An end to the Trans-Pacific Partnership and a renegotiation of all trade agreements. You kind of get a sense that we're, we're oh, oh, here we go. A right to restored land, clean air, clean water, and housing, and an end to exploitive privatization of natural resources and political power. We demand independent black political power and black self-determination in areas of society. We, revision, we envision a remaking of the current U.S. political system in order to create a real democracy where black people and marginalized people can effectively exercise full political power. This includes an end to the criminalization of black political activity. What? Public financing of elections, election protection and expansion and the right to vote for all people, including a 16-year-old pre-registration, full access to technology, including net neutrality and protection and increased funding for black institutions like historically black colleges and universities. I, I, I kid you not. I kid you. This, I mean, this is... This really, I mean, it's amazing how these organizations are leftist organizations and all of their solutions are always the same solutions. Uh, we got to get rid of private corporations. We got to impose communism. And we've got to end the economy as we know it. Uh, we got to let kids vote. Uh, it, this is what you're dealing with here. 
it is, I think, not just acceptable but appropriate right now to say Black Lives Matter. But understand the organizations, Movement for Black Lives and the Black Lives Matter organization are deeply progressive institutions hostile to the values of people of faith and to the structures of Western civilization, which they've decided are exploitative and they want to impose essentially Soviet-era Marxist policies. Yeah, those worked real great. Want to be on the show? Call Eric now at 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425. In the spirit of ridiculousness, as protests for racial equality and standing against police brutality continue throughout the United States following the murder of George Floyd, newspaper columnist Steve Chapman says it's time for a major sports team to consider a name change. Not the Redskins, although they're after that too. No, no. In the Chicago Tribune, yes, this is an institution that's going to get them noticed in Texas. In the Chicago Tribune, Chapman says the Texas Rangers need to change their name because it serves no purpose other than honoring a storied law enforcement agency with a history of brutality and racist behavior. Chuck Norris is coming for this guy. Chapman cites the new book, Cult of Glory, the bold and brutal history of the Texas Rangers, written by Doug Swanson. In it, the Rangers' long history of savagery, lawlessness, and racism is destroyed. I got a, I got a Texas Rangers story. This is me hitting my hand on the desk, by the way, because I'm trying to say, y'all, I didn't get home till one o'clock in the morning. I was at Chris Burns's house last night until after 1130 um, it, and and then had to drive back from, I, I'd drunk, gone from Habersham to him, uh, to his house, and then from his house to mine. I didn't get home until one. I'm trying to keep myself away. The amount of coffee I have had this morning is crazy. So in, in 2000, when it was 2011, uh, was it was 2011. Yeah, it was 2011. Uh, we did our, uh, resurgent. Yeah, it was in the red state gathering in Charleston, South Carolina. And Rick Perry, the governor of Texas announced he was running for president and the Texas Rangers came with him. And I had a hospitality suite, the presidential suite at the, at the, what was it, the Marion hotel or whatever in, in downtown Charleston. And the Texas Rangers had to come inspect the room. Cause that was going to be the holding room for the governor of Texas. And that Texas Ranger looked like, um, um, oh, what, what's it, Arlie Ermey, who I knew, uh, looked like Arlie Ermey. He comes in and um, he, inspe- I mean, he's literally opening like the drawers where the forks and knives are in the kitchen of this room. He's going into every, he's looking under the bed, he's raising the mattress, he's opening the closets, he's pulling out the drawers. And I just finally chuckled. I said, man. I've had the Secret Service come in and do stuff before, and I've never seen anything. I, I've never seen them be as thorough as the Texas Rangers. That man wheeled around on me, looked at me, and says, Sir, we're the Texas Rangers. We've never left a man behind. I was like, okay. I mean, seriously, that, that, was, that was the reaction from the guy. Sir, we're the Texas Rangers. Never left a man behind. And, um, yeah, the Texas Rangers, they, they, they put the Secret Service to shame. I was impressed. And so you got a baseball team. Named after the Texas Rangers, the city of Dallas, by the way, has approved the removal of a Texas Ranger statue from Love Field. Uh, Just ridiculous, some of the stuff that's going on now. 
Uh, so I dug in. This it didn't make sense to me that Love feel they would remove a statue of Texas Ranger. I dug into it a little more. Uh, so the it is a specific Texas Ranger, not a symbol of the Texas Rangers. E.J. Banks, there's a statue of him. He's a Texas Ranger at Love Field. They've removed him. Apparently, he stood in the way of integration of black students in 1956. Mansfield High and Texarkana Junior College, he defied a court order. Yeah, I think I would tear it, uh, I would remove his statue from the airport as well. Uh, but I, I got I to gotta spend a moment on absurdity with you. Philip found the story. Uh, this is from theblaze.com. Uh, the city council of Duluth, Minnesota is considering removing the word chief from the job titles of top administrators at the urging of the mayor who says the term is offensive to indigenous people. The Star Tribune reported that during a news conference Wednesday, Mayor Emily Larson implored city council members to vote to approve the change next week so that we have more inclusive leadership and less language that is rooted in hurt and offensive intentional marginalization. Alicia Kozlowski, the city's communication relations, community relations officer and a member of the Grand Portage and uh, Fond du Lac bands of Lake Superior Chippewa, is on board with the initiative. She told the outlet, I think there are other titles that we have the opportunity to use to steer away from language that may put people down based off their race or culture. Kozlowski says the term chief is used as a racial epithet and turned into a microaggression. Oh, good Lord. Um, do you know where the word chief comes from? Uh, do, do you really think, by the way, when, when the founders of this country wrote the Constitution and they declared that the president of the United States would be the commander in chief of the armed forces, that, that they were trying to make a racial slur against American Indians? Oh, Lord, these people are stupid. Um, chief comes from the Latin caput uh, for head which was derived into Old French, chief, meaning leader. It is an Old French word, chief. Chef also comes from that. Chef and chief are derived from the same root of the Latin caput, uh, meaning head, uh, and it shouldn't take a genius to know that. It all it, all it takes is a, a simple search of the dictionary to point that out, and yet they're finding the word chief is a microaggression. I'm sorry, chief, but you're an idiot. You're going to get rid of, oh my goodness, calling someone a chief. Do you know why they called the chief of a tribe the chief of the tribe? Because he was the leader of the tribe. The French Indian War. Oh, can we talk about that? Um, it, it, call, calling calling the head of a tribe a chief? It, it's not a, oh my gosh, these people are stupid. It's not a, a word used to put down Indians. Can't we, I'm sorry, Native American. I you can't call them Indians. Tore down the Columbus statue over that one. Nope, it, it's it's y'all. The commander in chief is not racist. Okay, now we're just getting into stupidity here. 
people are stupid. And and what's going on right now in this country with serious issues and, and these idiots getting involved uh, just reminds you of just how stupid so many people are in the world today. You know, I, I, I said before, I wrote this yesterday, you know one of the reasons I hated being a lawyer? I hated being a lawyer because there was this thing called a client. And the client, you needed them as a lawyer, but they were inevitably uh, insufferable people who had uh, problems that were easy to solve, but they were too stupid to want to solve them the right way because they needed to fight and sue someone. You're like, oh, you know, okay, uh, we we can resolve this. Let's go to mediation. No, 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 no. I want to sue, 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 sue. And yeah, I just, I don't have time for you people. People are stupid. Uh, the, the people in, in Duluth, Minnesota are clearly superiorly, supremely stupid people for thinking the word chief is a microaggression. What the heck is a microaggression anyway? Let, let's see what the dictionary says about a microaggression. Microaggression, a statement, action, or incident regarded as an instance of indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group such as a racial or ethnic minority. The students posed with dry erase boards documenting their experiences with microaggressions on campus. Oh, that's the example given in the dictionary. Students posed with dry erase boards documenting their experiences with microaggressions on campus. Indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against members of a marginalized group. Here's the example. They are not subject to daily acts of microaggression. I assume microaggression was a fighting midget, but nope. Oh, I guess that's a microaggression for saying that. I, I know. This is, this is so ridiculous. The use of the word chief is not a microaggression, you, you idiot. Kowalski said the term chief. Kozlowski, I'm sorry. <gasps> Was it a micro? I just called her Kowalski. No, it's it's Kozlowski. Said the term chief is used as a racial epithet, and it turned into a microaggression. You people are idiots, and that's not a microaggression on my part. That's an aggression on my part. You are stupid people. Stupid for thinking that. I, I just... We don't call people stupid enough these days, and we, we have let the stupid people take over. A microaggression for calling someone the police chief, that, that, that's uh, the, the chief administrator. They want to change the job title of the city's chief administrative officer to city administrator and the title of the chief financial officer to financial director, and they want to change the title of police chief and fire chief because they're offending people. You're not offended. You're just an idiot. Wow. I, I just, I, I, I don't, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm starting just not to care because we got too many stupid people out there. You know, this reminds me, relatedly. Uh, so so Taylor Lawrence was one of the, the idiots at the New York Times who was so offended by Tom Cotton. She was upset. People could get killed by this. Our black reporters, their lives could be in jeopardy. Now she's got, a, it's almost a celebratory. High school students and alumni are using social media to expose racism. Learning has been online and remote this semester. So too now are call outs of questionable behavior. Over the past few weeks, as the Black Lives Matter movement has grown following outrage over the killing of George Floyd, high school students have leveraged every social media platform to call out their peers for racist behavior. Students have repurposed large meme accounts, 
set up Google Docs and anonymous pages on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter, and wielded their personal followings to hold friends, friends, and classmates accountable for behavior they deem unacceptable. People will post videos of people saying the N-word or videos where they're being racist or using derogatory words and stuff like that, and they go viral, said Stephanie Giannotti, 16, a sophomore at Whitesboro. <gasps> Whitesboro? What? Caucasian Borough High School. Let, let's do this. Instead of in Whitesboro, New York, it's Caucasian Borough, New York, or Europe Borough, New York. How about that? Where a teacher was recently criticized for stating that all lives matter in a virtual school event. He later apologized for saying, listen, y'all, I, 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 I went through a dissertation earlier in this program of why why I'm not offended by people wanting to say Black Lives Matter. But but to to harass someone for saying that all lives matter is stupid. On June 2nd, an anonymous Instagram account dedicated to exposing racism at San Marcos High School in San Marcos, California, appeared online. Ozia Niptali Garcia, 19, a senior, noticed it almost immediately. The account was shared across group chats and Instagram stories, and within a few hours had amassed 900 followers. The account began sharing screenshots and videos of students at the school using racial slurs, engaging in cultural appropriation participating in the George Floyd challenge and making insensitive remarks. Apparently the George Floyd challenge as well. You can guess ridiculous. The names and handles of each student were included in the post. So this used to be called, remember when this was called bullying? Remember when this was called bullying? When you use social media to shame other people, it was called bullying. But no, no, now it's okay to bully as long as the people you bully are the people that no one likes because they're bad people. Who do you decide? Y'all, this this ends badly for everyone, by the way. Uh, when the online mob comes for you, there there's nowhere to hide. The online mob comes. Uh, and and what's so crazy here is they're doing this as, as an almost flattering story of, of taking this back, of, of, of shaming the bad people. Does, does someone have to be bullied and but you see you know when they used to do these stories about uh kids who were bullied online and they committed suicide because they were bullied online it was the people who bullied them who were the bad guys but i gotta tell you when they start shaming some of these kids and hound them out of jobs or out of school for the bad things they've done and they've done bad things let's let's acknowledge it you use the n-word you shouldn't but when they commit suicide are are, are is the new york times going to celebrate the death and I know that sounds awful for me to say. But where does it end? You're, you're writing now uh, in a near celebratory fashion that, hey, these kids are using their social media accounts to call out the bad guys who they don't like because they were racially insensitive. They said all lives matter instead of black lives matter. They used the N-word, which is unacceptable. Uh, they did George Floyd challenge, which is ridiculous. But they did something, something that other people thought was racist. And some of the examples that they give are, are are kind of ridiculous. Where where do you where do you do this after posting some advocacy on Instagram and TikTok for the Blue Lives Matter moment? Ms. Berry, whose father is a police officer, was met with vicious harassment. Her post spread across her post her peers' Instagram feeds, and my own friends were commenting that I was racist and they can't support me. Things travel fast. I'm nervous about my address getting leaked. I, I'm y'all. 
we we have reached the part of uh, the revolution where pretty soon Robespierre is going to lose his head. We have allowed the, the, the what, what do they call the, the committee in France during the revolutionary, the, the French Revolution, that, that uh, the, the inmates are about to run the asylum. And you got the New York Times covering it, cheering it on. Uh, and this is, this is problematic. This is deeply problematic. And I, you, you, we're headed to a very dangerous place in this country. One of the things that we can't acknowledge here right now is that people do bad things and we should work to get people to not do those bad things. But sending the mob after the people who do bad things is a level of vigilantism that we should not want. You know, in the so in the in the early 20th century you would have bands of racist vigilantes who would send lynch mobs after innocent racial minorities and now we're sending the mobs for the people who do the stuff we don't like online and we should be just as concerned for the mob coming now to the bad guy. And let's admit it, some of these people are racist. But we're going to destroy their lives because, and here's the other problem, is that some of these kids, what they've done, they're doing it at, at 13, 14, 15 years old. And then they get to be 21, 25, 30 years old, and their lives are ruined. Their lives are ruined because of something they did as a kid in high school. I mean, we've seen this happen. We've seen this play out with with kids who go to college and they get scholarships. And some reporter for USA Today goes back into their Twitter account from when they were 13 years old and said, oh, this kid made a racist joke when he was 13. Destroy! We have the armies of Mordor marching across the land right now uh, seeking to wreak havoc, and and they're doing it on social media. And, you know, and and here's the problem is like me saying this. How often am I trying to tell you that that some of these people, they're doing bad things? But the fact that I still think it's bad that people are leading the social media mob to ruin their lives, oh, well, you're part of the problem now. You're standing in the way of the mob doing justice. That's what they would say in the early 20th century, too. You're standing in the way of the mob just delivering justice. No, you're standing for what's right. You're standing for due process. You're standing for the the individuals against the mob. And we got the New York Times now willing to cheer on the mob until the mob turns on them. Did, did you hear about the, the, this is a weird story from the Washington Post. Uh, the Washington Post recounts a party where a woman showed up in blackface to, it was a costume party. She showed up in blackface to ridicule Megyn Kelly somehow or another. She worked at the Washington Post uh, or, or she she was friends with people at the Washington Post. She apologized when people, when it went badly, she left. She went into therapy Three years later, the Washington Post ran a story about it and cost the woman her current job because of what she had done three years before. The whole thing was bizarre, and clearly there were internal politics at the at the Washington Post at play. This was a party for the, the Washington Post liberal cartoonists. Clearly, uh, there was a, a, a an internal political drama at play here, but 
I mean, people are just dredging old stuff up. I, at some point, there's got to be a statute of limitations, but there's not. When it comes to woke mobs, there is never a statute of limitations. This is going to foster more resentment. And you know what, what actually happens here is this stuff doesn't actually go away. It just goes to new places. It, it, it's like water. It will find a crack and get into the crack and it will fester there. Water, of course, doesn't fester. I'm mixing my metaphors here. But it will become problematic later. You will think it's gone away and it's just gone under the surface and you don't see it. And shaming people instead of offering them grace is not going to end well for anyone. And what you see inevitably historically is that ultimately the mob turns on each other. And so these these people are playing with fire. They're, they're out to get the bad guys. But the problem is once you've had a taste for blood, you don't get the taste of blood out of your mouth. You, you kind of like it and you want more. And pretty soon you turn on all the other members of the mob. We'll go, that person in the mob was not sufficiently outraged. We must get him next. It ends badly for them, and the rest of us, we should be rooting for injuries when it gets to that point. It's just, it's it's pathetic to see this, and, and for the New York Times to cover it as they're covering it. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, there are a few warnings of, oh my gosh, this poor kid could have their life destroyed, but this is celebratory coverage of, yeah, the students are taking action against the bad guys. And who was the bad guy? The the teacher who said all lives did matter. <gasps> Honest news and conservative views. Never separated from the truth. It's the Eric Erickson Show. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is, well, you know what? It's too late. You've run out the clock now. Um, uh, Okay, so I I am told, by the way, that our legislature, and you know, I told you guys, Prophets are not welcome in their hometown. That's not what I told you. That's what Jesus said. But no, um, I told you people that after the election was over and your Republican members of the legislature could not be held accountable any longer, they would start doing bad things. I am told this afternoon the House uh, will try to legalize casino gambling in the state of Georgia. That's right. Uh, They've said all along they weren't going to do it. And now that the election is over, they are going to try to rush it through in the House of Representatives. And they want to rush it through in the Senate as well now that it's it's over and done with. Um, I guess next they'll legalize marijuana, recreational marijuana. uh, And uh, they will do all sorts of other crazy things now now that they're not accountable. you're going to need to, I guess we'll have to fire up the action center on all these things. Listen, if you want to join the army of activists to be able to engage on this stuff, uh, text the word army to three, three, seven, 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 so that I can send you action alerts on this stuff and, and get you active to try to shut this stuff down. Text the word army to three, three, seven, seven, seven. So whether it's the hate crimes legislation or casino gambling or, or all sorts of other stuff, in the state, uh, as this legislature is meeting and trying to now rush through bad things, you need to be an activist. You need to prepare. I will keep you informed. I will send you the action alerts. But, man, you guys are going to have to have to do it. You're going to have to do the heavy lifting. You're going to have to man the phones. You're going to have to get engaged. Uh, text the word ARMY, A-R-M-Y, to 33777 to make this happen. Uh, why do that? Because I can tell you what's going on in the state, and I can give you all the information, but I only I am only one man, and I've only got uh, my state representative and my state senator. Uh, you guys got to reach out to yours on all this stuff. So be engaged. Be a part of the Army of Activists for this program, 
and I can make it easy for you to reach out to the legislature. In the meantime, have a wonderful weekend. Uh, enjoy yourselves. The weather's supposed to be good, I do believe.